0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, convenient silence has fallen, so I will <laughs> take that moment uh, to uh, welcome everybody to uh, what is the fourth in our series of uh, seminars celebrating English literature 1762 to 2012. Um, and uh, this is really something that is a, a joint event between IASH and the Department of English Literature. Um, We are having a series on uh, Hugh Blair, Hugh Blair's presence and legacies around the world and um, uh, today we have a particular pleasure I think in in welcoming Deidre Lynch who's the uh, Chancellor Jackman Professor of English at the University of Toronto and is here as a visiting research fellow with us um, uh, for six months uh, which is a great privilege for us and, and, and a great Delight and Deirdre uh, is one of the leading critics of 18th century literature and romanticism um, and uh, It's uh, been wonderful to have her with us in Edinburgh This is not the first time that she's given us some of her very valuable research time um, And she's already uh, given a talk to uh, Swink or introduced a a session at Swink uh, and has been involved in a a number of uh, things with other colleagues so uh, she's been very generous with her time Um, I might just uh, mention that uh, amongst the topics that she's written and spoken about with great authority uh, are women writers the history and theory of the novel the history of reading moral philosophy the history of emotion uh, and these uh, large areas come in and out of uh, the body of work that she's published. Uh, it's a mark of her standing in the field that she is one of uh, two editors of the Norton Anthology of English Literature, the eighth edition, uh, which I imagine was no mean task. In <laughs> the night <laughs> was worse, actually. But, <laughs> <laughs> right. um, but in her own right, as it were, she's published uh, a very important book uh, on the economy of character, novels, market culture, and the business of inner meaning. Um, which uh, originally came out in 1998 and continues to be a great resource for us uh, uh, all working in this period. Uh, She's published editions of Mary Wollstonecraft of Jane Austen, she has another edition of uh, Mansfield Park I think ongoing at the moment, uh, and a collection of essays on the Janeites, uh, Austen's disciples. Uh, She's been working uh, in Edinburgh um, on completing a book, uh, we hope, in, uh, <laughs> at home in English, A Cultural History of the Love of Literature, which uh, is much awaited. And I'm delighted that she's taken uh, time out uh, from that and from her current rethinking of Gothic writing uh, to talk about Daniel Wilson to Scotland and Canada, the export of English, and it gives uh, our first sort of truly international <coughs> dimension to the series. Thanks.
1: Oh, thank you for that generous introduction, Susan. Um, there is a handout uh, it's mainly to help you orient yourself in in, in terms of dates and and and, and titles um, but i'm quite proud of my newfound ability to. Clip pictures onto um, uh, uh, word documents. So, and I'll, I'll I'll be referring to to one of those pictures dur- during my, my comments. Um, the uh, the uh, picture I won't be referring to is is a portrait of uh, a photographic portrait of of Daniel Wilson in in old age, which I stole from the internet last night. Um, my worry is that I've been haunted while while working on this talk. Um, by some University of Toronto apocrypha, apparently there is a desk in the college Wilson taught in that has carved into it the words "Windbag Dan," and I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> that you won't think that the spirit of of Windbag Dan has <laughs> has has descended on me, but we'll see. Uh, so. Here goes. The the terms that he uses midway through the third Waverley novel, The Antiquary, as he introduces a minor character he names the Reverend Mr. Blattergowl, suggest that Sir Walter Scott might have been irritated or at least bemused by the commemorative project of this lecture series. There, the narrator informs us that the eponymous antiquary, Jonathan Oldbuck of of Monk Barnes, holds the Reverend Blattergall's understanding in contempt, and that his disdain for his neighbor is the greater because the Presbyterian minister often waxes offensively loquacious, especially, and here I quote, on affairs of genius and taste, something that Blattergall does from his hope of one one day fighting his way to a chair of rhetoric or ballet. If you've read the novel, you will know not to overestimate the blow to English professors' self-esteem dealt them, dealt us, by the antiquary's identification of the tradition of Hugh Blair with self-promotion and long-windedness, because you will know that the antiquary himself is not altogether free from such flaws. In arranging for the paths of Blattergall and Jonathan Oldbuck to intersect, Scott has gleefully set up a duel, pitting pedant against pedant. Still, Scott, we know, himself declined Edinburgh University's Chair of Rhetoric and Ballet, at the same time that through his later life he made ever more evident the autobiographical purchase of his 1816 novel's portrait of Jonathan Oldbuck, that decipherer, sometimes misreader, of half-effaced architectural inscriptions and that voracious collector of papers, parchments, books and nondescript trinkets and jujaws. Daniel Wilson, the man who focuses my remarks today, thoroughly scrambles Scott's implied opposition between, on the one hand, antiquarian pursuits and, on the other hand, the tradition of Hugh Blair and Scottish bell Indeed, um, in my comments on Wilson's career and on the English-Canadian afterlife of Hugh Blair's curricular program more generally, I hope to suggest just how permeable the boundaries demarcating these scholarly practices remained well into the 19th century, even as antiquarianism muti- mutated into history on the one hand and into anthropology on the other. Edinburgh born and educated, Daniel Wilson was the first person in British North America, the set of colonies that in 1867 confederated to become the new self-governing country of Canada, to hold the title of Professor of English. In 1853, aged 37, he arrived at the newly founded University of Toronto on the north shore of Lake Ontario, already feted as the author of Memorials of Edinburgh in the olden time, 1848, and the Archaeology and Prehistoric Annals of Scotland, 1851. He was renowned, too, as the person who had carried out the scientifically-minded reorganization of the materials collected since the 18th century by the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, and who through that work had laid the foundations for the modern National Museum. The sound antiquarian principles that Wilson brought to this task and others, a fellow archaeologist commented following Wilson's death in 1892, he had first learned through his reading of Walter Scott's The Antiquary. The bygone framework in which, surprisingly for us, a work of fiction can be credited with teaching lessons in scientific rigor is something that I hope to bring back to view here. And the antiquary, published the year of Wilson's birth, will be a touchstone text to which I'll, sh- I'll recur throughout my comments. Wilson's long career, which crosses the Atlantic as well as many of the 19th century's emergent academic fields, in fact has the potential to call into question many of the assumptions that organize our current maps of the disciplines and their affinities. The project of literary study- studies is set up by Wilson in Victorian period Canada. Merits study as well for casting into relief some of the geopolitical consequences of the worldwide export of the tradition of Hugh Blair. In the concluding pages of this paper, (laughs) I want to pause over some of the new meanings that the 18th century Scottish rhetoricians' preoccupations with improvement and refinement took on in the new colonial circumstances of the 19th century, and by that means acknowledge how in the wake of its transatlantic travels, English literature came to underwrite (laughs) settler colonies' projects of cultural memory and white civility. Under any circumstances, Wilson's polymathic tendencies would have stood out, even in an epoch when eclecticism was the rule rather than the exception among British men and women of letters. These tendencies make the attempt to summarize his career challenging, but let me try. Born in 1816, as I've indicated, Wilson initially aspired to a career in the visual arts, and a plan to establish himself as an illustrator and engraver <coughs> drew him from Edinburgh to London in 1837. During his five years in London, he gravitated to a different branch of the print trade as he began to eat out <coughs> a living by authoring a motley set of publications, including a domestic novel titled The Curate's Daughter, most of which he seems to have been reluctant to acknowledge after he attained a secure literary respectability in later life. On his return to Edinburgh, Wilson again switched from pencil to pen when he used an album of his sketches of the old and menaced buildings of the old town as the basis for the book of local history that he titled Memorials of Edinburgh in the olden time. Though the preface there, using the language of phrenology, ascribes the book's value to the so-called faculty of locality that distinguishes this book from the works of the city's previous historians, the volume, in fact, made Wilson first socially mobile and then geographically mobile. The preliminaries for the book had led to his appointment as secretary to the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, and from that position he undertook first the reorganization of the antiquaries' collection of curiosities, as I've mentioned, and then in 1851 the book informed by that reorganization, the Archaeology and Prehistoric Annals of Scotland, the first comprehensive survey of Scottish archaeology and a text to which I'll return shortly. The honorary honorary doctorate, an LLD, that St. Andrew's University granted to Wilson in recognition of the achievement of that book was the only degree he ever earned. Wilson's time passed in Edinburgh Halls, as he put it, amounted to little more than a year, so don't get too (laughs) possessive and proud of him. Uh, that, That accreditation, however, along with the patronage of Lord Elgin, who was a member of the Society of Antiquaries and the governor of what was then Canada West and Canada East, Ontario, and Back, was evidently enough to secure Wilson the post of Professor of English and History in the Colonies. For the rest of his life, University College at the University of Toronto, an institution created by act of the Colonial Legislative Assembly in 1849, remained Wilson's academic home. This was not necessarily by choice. In fact, in 1865, Wilson applied without success for the Edinburgh University Regis Chair of Rhetoric and English Literature, as it was called by then, which instead went to David Mason. Despite the trauma that his faculty of locality presumably sustained when he had uprooted himself and his family from Britain, Wilson took full advantage of the ethnological opportunities of the New World. He he continued to contribute from the sidelines to various historical inquiries in Scotland, as Bob Morris has demonstrated he's an important player in the restoration of Edinburgh Castle in the 1880s. But he also shifted his attention as archaeologist and chronicler of human evolution and human extinction to the indigenous peoples of North America, measuring skulls and less frequently the heads of living individuals, and writing on the excavations of sepulchral mounds in the prairies where he had previously written on earth houses in the Hebrides. It is evident that throughout his career, Sir Thomas Brown's urn burial was as much a touchstone text for Wilson as, say, James Cowell Pritchard's Natural History of the compendium that defined ethnology for Anglophone readers until the era of Darwin. These ethnological preoccupations inform Wilson's book from 1862 prehistoric man, researches into the origins of civilization in the old and the new world. In the last quarter century of his life, Wilson, far from reigning in his his eclecticism, published among other, among many other things, a, a volume of poetry, Spring Wildflowers, a study of the poet forger Thomas Chatterton, and perhaps his strangest text, Caliban, the missing link a double essay in evolution and poetry that was his response to Darwin's descent of man, all the while serving in the administration of the University of Toronto. He became the president of University College in 1880 and the president of the university overall in 1890. From those positions he oversaw with some reluctance the admission of female students to the institution, and he established the conditions in which Toronto would, in the 20th century, metamorphose into one, one of the world's major research universities, with its first doctoral degree in English being granted in 1919. Let me return to the archaeology and prehistoric annals of Scotland which earned Daniel Wilson his own honorary doctorate and propelled him, as we would now say, onto the academic job market of the 19th century British Empire. Scotland's human capital was a major export item within that marketplace. There is not a college or university where at least one son of the heather is not to be found in some capacity, a commentator on Canadian higher education observed approvingly in the archaeology and prehistoric annals of Scotland is renowned for introducing the word prehistoric into the English language and its effect was to extend radically the depth of the past, projecting backward its temporal boundary and bringing back to remembrance the infancy of Scotland, Wilson's own metaphor, one that assimilates historical time to the life cycle of the individual and thereby makes the discontinuities of history disappear from sight. Emancipating British history from schemes centered on the Roman occupation, Wilson's book also mobilized for the first time in the British context the classificatory framework that Danish antiquaries had recently developed to bring order to the chronology of prehistoric cultures, the framework that some of us remember from um, elementary school that segregates Stone Age from Bronze Age from Iron Age artifacts. Let us note, however, that that in one rather crucial respect, the Archaeology and Prehistoric Annals is an odd book to parlay into a Doctor of Letters degree, since its achievement and originality derive from Wilson's conviction that those seeking to recover the past should not be limited to words to written records, either public or private, nor do obeisance to ancient texts. It is not true, Wilson declares, and I quote, that history is an inconceivable thing independent of written materials. Wilson instead bases his investigation of the new temporal zone he calls prehistory on information afforded by old human bones, by the remaining traces of earth houses in the highlands and Hebrides, and by the archeological finds being turned up in increasing numbers across mid 19th century Scotland by excavators involved in the frenzy of canal and railway building. The terms in which Wilson writes about skulls, weems, barrows, tumuli, canoes, pots, axes, and other mundane implements redeem them from from their dilapidation, triviality, and grisliness, converting them into precious relics of an antiquity Scots did not know they had enjoyed. Such objects, too, could be read. Paradoxically, their textuality is something that that word annals in Wilson's title implies. They could be read as the vestiges from which the interpreter could intuit an entire now-vanished way of life. Still, Wilson leaned on works of literature to sum up the aims of his book. His preface to the archaeology and prehistoric annals states, I quote, that the transition from profitless dilettantism to the intelligent spirit of scientific investigation that has of late been discernible among students of antiquity can, and still I quote, be traced to an impulse that proceeded from Abbotsford. That impulse, that is, which uh, was originally exemplified by Sir Walter Scott, who in the Waverley novels, as Wilson underlines, borrowing Thomas Carlyle's words to make his point, was the first of modern writers to proclaim the truth that the bygone ages of the world were actually filled by living men. With this statement, Scott is claimed as a precursor for Wilson's determination to modernize antiquarianism. The rare curios that antiquaries had scrutinized, accumulated, and fetishized for their own sakes would henceforth be treated instead as means to an end, (coughs) studied in a framework subordinating things to a profoundly human science that would infer from them the ways of living that characterized the dead. The affiliation with Scott arguably runs deeper still in Wilson's book. Archaeology and Prehistoric Annals repeatedly echoes the statements that Scott and others had made when contemplating the relations of imaginative literature to history, statements abounding especially in 18th century and early 19th century antiquaries, commentaries on folk legends and medieval romance. Romance scholarship of that era especially had had much to say about how, I quote, the infancy of all written history is necessarily involved in fable. This phrase is Wilson's actually, who in this passage from Archaeology and Prehistoric Annals, uses fable as a synonym for fictionality and uses involved in the now defunct sense that involves entanglement and a regrettable obscurity. The infancy of all written history is necessarily involved in fable. This scholarship from the eighteenth century had proceeded from such observations to the quite startling (laughs) premise that these extravagant fictions of the darkest ages, though deviating from all modern canons of verisimilitude, could nonetheless be interpreted in ways that would yield pictures of real life and manners. Romance and real history have the same common origin, Scott wrote in the essay on Romance he contributed to the supplement to the Encyclopedia Britannica in 1824. This essay chimes in its turn with the conjectural histories of genre constructed by the 18th century lecturers on rhetoric, Adam Smith in his lectures, as well as Blair in the critical dissertation on Ocean, as they describe poetry rather than prose, the idiom of imagination rather than of fact, as the go-to historical source for the early societies. The rationale that these scholars collectively elaborated for the historian's study of works of the imagination, Arthur Johnston commented long ago, had the appeal of a paradox. Here in the wildest imaginative stories were embedded the hard facts of social history. A comparable methodological gambit, likewise involving a reconsideration of the materials of historians' truth-telling, had enabled Wilson to shed bright light on a hitherto shadowy past. There is no point in shying away, however, from the fact that regardless of such echoes, and despite Wilson's identification of his scholarship as an offshoot of the project of the Waverley novels, the prehistory and archeological annals of Scotland still seems an improbable testimonial to its author's fitness for the role of professor of English literature. What was the University of Toronto thinking? Not the first time I've had to ask them myself that <laughs> question. <laughs> well, the question undoubtedly is anachronistic. In the days before the accreditation afforded by PhD degrees, there was prevailing uncertainty as to what a professor of English ought to have done and ought to do in order to live up to that title. Indeed, there is evidence that even as Wilson was crossing the Atlantic, the terms of his appointment at Toronto remained in play, and he was surprised to learn upon arrival that President John McCall had considered shifting the appointment to ancient history. And then, of course, there's the fact that the position had from the start been conceptualized as blending, two disciplines now firmly severed. Wilson was appointed as Professor of English Literature and History. Given the themes of this lecture series, it is perhaps even more telling of the mutations that the tradition launched by Adam Smith and Hugh Blair experienced in the 19th century that the topic of bell Ledge, though named explicitly as a component of the university college curriculum, was officially the responsibility of the classicist Reverend McCall, who also taught logic, and lay altogether outside the purview of the professor of English. We might also notice how decisively rhetoric, the other field that had defined Hugh Blair's professorship, was sidelined by the terms of Daniel Wilson's appointment. University College London had appointed the Reverend Thomas Dale as Professor of English Language and Literature in 1828, but such a title was exceptional. Across the border in the United States, as in Scotland, The 19th century university officials who, before 1853, had contributed to the prehistory of my discipline mainly did so by supporting chairs dedicated to rhetoric and English literature, English literature and rhetoric, not so at Toronto, a point I want to pause over because it raises again the questions with, with which I began about 19th century English studies debts to older configurations of antiquarianism and about the ramifications of those debts. Wilson, in particular, might have found it natural to think of history and English literature in tandem. He elaborated his studies of prehistory at a moment when ethnology tended to regard language as the most reliable indicator of racial affinity, and when a comparative philologist like Max Muller at Oxford was promoting his field as a kind of linguistic paleontology, which valued the surviving words of antique languages as, I quote, the most ancient monuments of the human race. What about for the Toronto students, what did the yoking of literature and history mean for them? Well, for a start, they were for decades fated to attend the lectures that Wilson based upon William Spalding's History of English Literature, lectures that traced, to quote the university calendar of 1877-1878, the history and structure of the language in relation to the national progress and the development of English literature. And lectures that prepared them for examinations apparently based much more on the textbook than on any primary text they might happen to open during the school year. Oh. The examination questions from Wilson's day survive, and I have wondered how 21st century undergraduates would fare with for instance, describe the character of the English metrical romances written before the 15th century and contrast the state of feeling which made them popular with that to which Sir Walter Scott appealed when he sought to reawaken a taste for this same form of literary composition or with sketch the history of the English novel. Or with, how does literary cultivation naturally develop itself in a nation emerging from barbarism? <laughs> Wherein did our Anglo-Saxon forefathers deviate from the usual course? These seem challenging, even if the answers were to be found in the textbook. In the 1853 preface to that textbook, Spalding, previously yet another holder of Edinburgh's Regis Chair, characterized it as a manual which should relate and explain some of the leading facts in the intellectual history of our nation. And I quote from a revised edition, which was in fact published by a Toronto firm in 1878, a fact that might have prompted some Canadian students to sign this textbook to wonder about the boundaries of our nation and wonder about who was and wasn't included in that collective. One way to understand Toronto's choice to hire a professor of English Literature and History is as a sign of an emergent consensus that literary reading was valuable primarily as a right of cultural memory and that English teaching was valuable primarily because it assisted the student in repossessing his cultural heritage. At Wilson's suggestion, the edifice constructed in Toronto to house University College was built in the Gothic Revival style and modeled in part on the north transept of the ruins of Kelso Abbey in the borders. That's the the photograph on uh, one of the pages of your handout. The theory underlying this ruinously expensive architectural project might have been that though University College students lived thousands of miles away from memory-saturated locales such as the Abbey, those could be simulated on colonial soil, and the identity endowing, acculturating, or reacculturating powers of old buildings that John Ruskin had discussed in The Nature of Gothic could be reactivated through such simulations. The teaching Wilson did in that building might, if viewed in connection with such a theory, be seen as an instrument for the preservation of English Canada's imperial ties. That teaching instructed students to think of themselves as expatriates and reminded them where they came from. The teaching of Canadian literature in university college was still a century away. There is, however, another option for understanding how literary history was received in Canadian classrooms. Shift the emphasis, adopt Robert Crawford's more dialectical account, which acknowledges that those who were colonized by literary studies found that with it they could colonize in their turn. And you can see this literary history as representing the 19th century continuation of the 18th century project launched in the Scottish Enlightenment of elaborating a synthetic, pan-ethnic, and inclusive concept of Britishness. In 19th century Canada, that fictive eth- ethnicity facilitated the ascendancy of the Scots in particular to political, social, and economic power. I've been suggesting that when English studies was exported to Canada in the person of Daniel Wilson, it was as a discipline that was valued as, means, as a means of access to the historical past and to the sources housed in that past that it could anchor the imperial identities of the present. What did not survive the North Atlantic crossing quite so well though, was that scheme also elaborated in 18th century Scotland that promoted the study of select literary texts as models by which students might form their own styles and or powers of aesthetic appreciation. Certainly the lecture notes kept by a teenager named William Nesbitt Ponton, who attended Daniel Wilson's first year English honors course in 1873, yield only a few comments on the pleasures of a delicate taste Or on the arts of persuasion. The statements from lecture that Ponton dutifully takes down are instead more like this one, and I quote, There is an intimate connection between the literary and civil history of nations. History tells of the acts. Literature tells of the mind, the mode of influence, the passions of the people. This same student also writes down what he has heard Wilson saying about Bard's imaginative extravagances and about how poetry is a more ancient form than prose, points reiterated in lecture halls since the mid-eighteenth century days of Smith and Blair. The note-taking suggests a student who feels he's expected to be learning about literature, not necessarily expected to have aesthetic experiences with it or to produce such experiences in his turn. In the 1980s and 1990s, when members of departments of English in the United States began assembling self-reflexive accounts of our disciplines beginnings and set to identifying early symptoms of our disciplines current travails, they tended to narrate the afterlife of the Scottish rhetorical tradition as a story of how things went downhill. Sometimes, the histories they assembled told of a betrayal. Franklin (coughs) Court, for instance, in institutionalizing English literature has Hugh Blair betraying the legacy of Adam Smith by abandoning the pragmatic and political concerns of Smith's lectures and shifting, I quote, toward a consciously limited bellatristic objective. Sometimes they told of missed opportunities. What if Adam Ferguson had been appointed a professor of rhetoric, Thomas Miller asked in the formation of College English, English, wouldn't that have halted the advance of Blair's bellatristic approach and instead maintained rhetoric's concern for politics? These critics tended to concur, however, in discerning in the late 18th century the beginning of the (laughs) end, which is rather depressing as this emergent discipline turned from a socially responsive pedagogy promoting an active production of public discourse to something more quiescent or even politically noxious, a pedagogy centered on privatized acts of aesthetic appreciation and or confirming the racialist thinking of an age of empire. There are problems, I think, with this approach. For one thing, the very narrative form that is mobilized by this criticism, the narrative of decline and fall, has the effect of loading the deck against the literary historians of the 19th century. What literary history means in itself, what the nature of the connection between literature and history is precisely, such questions will tend to be under examined within a scheme in which the most important thing about literary history is seen to be its displacement of rhetoric. For better or worse, though, the limited amount of scholarship examining the institutionalization of English studies in Canada has modeled itself on this school of criticism and adhered to this same set of master plots. It is only fair that I tell you that in this scholarship, Daniel Wilson is generally cast as the villain. He occupies, that is, the Hugh Blair role. In orienting the curriculum to the appreciation of the literary past and the rights of cultural memory that appreciation involves, Wilson it's been said, betrayed the promise of rhetoric. Certainly the conviction that there should be a deep connection between literature teaching and history teaching shaped academic life in English Canada for decades after Wilson's appointment in 1853. The three principal universities in 19th century Ontario, Toronto, Queen's, and the University of Western Ontario all had professorships combining English with history, keeping them until 1894, 1910, and 1920, respectively. Toronto maintained a joint program in the subjects for its undergraduates until 1936. And in the year 2012, rhetoric and composition, the courses and expository writing that are staples of college life for beginning undergraduates in the United States, continue to be marginal to the curricula of most Canadian universities, Toronto included. And Wilson's University College did indeed sideline a prior tradition that was more rhetorically centered. This was at Victoria College an academic institution set up in the small country town of Cobourg, Ontario by the Methodist Conference of Canada in 1841 from its inception, Victoria College made English study a requirement for all undergraduates. In his inaugural address of 1842, the principal, the Methodist minister, the Reverend Edgerton Ryerson, had quoted at length from Hugh Blair's comments on the advantages enjoyed by the English language and said that to omit making provision for the teaching of English would be to do a grave injury to students who had to live in the modern world. He meant something quite particular by the teaching of English, however, Composition was the sole concern of Victoria's curriculum, with literary texts in the vernacular coming into the students' programs of study, as in American freshman English courses at the present day, simply to suggest topics for the students' essays. By 1885, Victoria College would be federated with the University of Toronto and transplanted to the city, and nowadays my students who belong to Vic are consistently surprised to hear of its former Methodist connection. All they tend to know, if anything, of its prior history is that that it was, for almost half the 20th century, the employer of Northrop Fry, and his abortive career as a Methodist circuit rider comes as news to them. When Daniel Wilson arrived in Toronto in 1853, however, this Methodist institution was autonomous Unlike the new non denominational university, which Wilson joined, it received no government funding. The discrepancy in their financial fortunes made for much bad feeling. But of course, the very existence of a godless institution like Wilson's University College, a nursery of infidelity, opponents said, where no divinity was taught and where no religious tests were administered to students or faculty, was also an affront to people who wished to see higher education controlled by particular religious denominations. The extension of the secular state into the realm of higher education that Wilson's University College embodied was without precedent. The friction between Wilson's institution and the Methodists came to a head in 1860 when the founding principal of Victoria College, Edgerton Ryerson, successfully called for a government investigation into the manner in which the University Act had been administered during the 11 years since the establishment of the University of Toronto. During the hearings held at the Legislative Assembly in Ottawa, Ryerson and Wilson held an acrimonious debate that was widely covered in newspapers and in pamphlets that preserved their remarks verbatim. The real issue was tax money and Ryerson's conviction that denominational colleges deserve more of it, but their comments range more broadly. The result is that this debate represents one of the rare moments when the assumptions outlining what universities are meant to do received a public articulation. I want briefly to focus in on their debate for that reason, but I'm not sure that the positions of the debaters may be divvied up neatly along conservative or progressive lines. Ryerson appears to have been particularly incensed for instance that Wilson was currently reforming the curriculum at University College to allow what were called options. In a small step towards the specialization that would be the norm in the 20th century research university, Toronto honours students were to be permitted in their fourth years to individualize their programs of study by dropping some previously mandated courses and adding others in particular subjects such as English, modern languages, mathematics or natural sciences. Seemingly forgetting that he had advocated for modern subjects like English when opening Victoria College in 1842, Ryerson expressed outrage over the various anti-classical elements that Wilson, he said, had added to university life. Ryerson lamented this growing divergence from the classic-centered curriculum o- of Oxford and Cambridge and declared that Wilson's own brief, History in English, involves subjects that were already taught sufficiently in grammar schools and need not be taught to university undergraduates. In a vigorous defense of the Toronto curriculum, Wilson decried the Oxbridge model, to which Rid- Ryerson had appealed, as out of steps with the times, still betraying, he said, signs of its origins at so many assemblies by so many monks in barns in the times of good old King Alfred. He could not help, Wilson said, but regret how Oxford-trained students were as far from being at home in the ordinary business of life as if they had just emerged from the cloister. Such regret, he said, came naturally to one like him, who had been taught in Scottish halls. But Ryerson (laughs) proposed a different account of his opponent's intellectual affiliations. In the lowering of standards that was ostensibly at stake in the current turn from the generalist curriculum and its classical core, Wilson was, Ryerson said, not only advancing a feminization of the curriculum, Spaulding's textbook was being used in ladies' seminaries, Ryerson noted, but also advancing its Americanization. Wilson's system, Ryerson sniped, was, I quote, characterized by that superficiality which marks the proceedings of the educational institutions in the new and western states of the neighboring republics. That accusation has since 1860 become familiar. Through the late 20th century and early 21st, it's been a staple in the rhetorical arsenal to which people outside the United States and Canada to some extent, but probably even more often in the United Kingdom, resort whenever they debate the meaning of recent disciplinary transformations. Uh, We heard this accusation of Americanization two weeks ago, in fact, in this room. (laughs) Old fashioned even at the time, though, was Ryerson's attack on Wilson as a mere antiquarian and as such a figure besotted by trivial objects, excessively dilettantishly attached to collectibles. I quote Ryerson again, he to be sure has published a book, but it was a book upon relics, a book upon antiquities. He has a peculiar affinity for such subjects of that description, but a person of his pretensions to literature and philosophy might have known that there have been those who have risen high in their intellectual attainments and left monuments rather more enduring than essays on Indian pipes and tobacco. With this comment, we are back to the terrain of the antiquary, where, however, antiquarians' enthusiasms for relics are described rather more fondly. Ryerson is awfully confident that there is no common ground between Indian pipes and intellectual attainments. His jeering bespeaks in part the white supremacist thinking characteristic of the period. Pipes were and are central to the spiritual traditions, helping to define many aboriginal communities and in 1860 some of the ceremonies in which they figure were for that very reason on the verge of being banned by Canada's central government. At the same time, Ryerson's sarcasm about Wilson's antiquarianism, reviving a very old joke, seems behind the times in ignoring how, with the disciplinary transformations of the 19th century, the objects of antiquarianism had acquired a new prestige as data for the most up-to-date investigations into the nature of the human intellect and human diversity. Meaning to contribute to those investigations, Wilson was not especially interested in Aboriginal artifacts in and of themselves. Not even, rather sadly, especially interested in the Mohawk or or Ojibwe people he met who might have made or used these objects, modern day equivalents but rather saw both these things and people, in light of his preoccupations with European prehistory and with the problem of human origins. In an 1855 letter he sent to a fellow antiquary, David Lang, back in Edinburgh, Wilson described a recent excursion to the north shore of Lake Superior, I quote. It was my great good fortune to see the red Indian savage painted and adorned in his genuine native condition and to observe thus the manners of a people probably closely resembling those of Scotland's primitive eras. Prefacing his 1862 prehistoric man, researches into the origin of civilization in the old and new world, Wilson wrote similarly that upon arriving in Canada, he had perceived that, I quote, he had already realized much in relation to a long obliterated past of Britain's and Europe's infancy, which was here reproduced in living reality before his eyes. Wilson's programmatic association of fellow Canadians who were his contemporaries, subjects of Queen Victoria as he was, with prehistoric Europeans, and his suggestion that their position on the timeline of human progress was that of primitives or even infants, exemplify the denial of coevalness for which Johannes Fabian has criticized the discipline of anthropology. These passages typify anthropologists' long-standing tendency to to deny that they and the peoples they observe Occupy a common time frame. On the other hand, the all embracing universalism implicit in the model of civilization that Wilson draws on in such comments was also a resource enabling him to oppose vigorously the polygenicist arguments and the hereditarian doctrines of adherents of the 19th century's racial theories, who, energized by Darwin's descent of man, aimed to document the immutability of the racial hierarchy they superimposed on human diversity. The kind of evolution that Wilson meant his own researches to adduce remained resolutely social rather than biological, and overall, as his modern biographer Carl Carl Becker has said, he remained more reluctant than most contemporary ethnologists to construct stages of lineal progress along which peoples were assigned positions on grounds of racial capacity. Because he was loyal to Enlightenment universalism, Wilson was able to remain true, as his fellow archaeologist noted in the passage I cited at the outset, to the comparative method he had learned from the antiquary, where Jonathan Oldbuck says that, to trace the connections of nations by their usages and the similarity of the implements which they employ has long been my favorite study. And with these words vindicates his enthusiasm for the objects that illustrate such connections. An example would be the Egyptian jars that form part of Oldbuck's nephew, Hector's spoils of war, in which Hector has bestowed on Oldbuck just prior to this passage. In the tradition of Jonathan Oldbuck, Wilson arranged for the Scots traders employed by the Hudson Bay Company to stockpile and export hundreds of Inuit and Aboriginal artifacts for the collection of what is now the National Museum of Scotland, a process that, in abstracting these objects from their cultural surrounds, converted them into antiquities and put them under glass. The twisted logic that organized the British Empire often produced situations of this kind. Those objects that in their places of origin were judged to be valueless impediments to the natives' progress in civility and civilization, impediments to their assimilation, that is, could, reclassified and set in motion, become a museum's treasures. Was Daniel Wilson fated as a sideline sideline to the professing of history and English literature to become an expert on vanishing cultures? Later editions of memorials of Edinburgh in the olden time had to include annotations indicating how many of the buildings Wilson described there had been demolished since the book's first appearance in 1848. Wilson's 1862 prehistoric man described how in measure as the colonists of the new world continued their western progress, the red man disappeared, his term, a phenomenon he called melancholically a dark riddle. Wilson turned with evident relief from this vanishing to the Metis of the Red River Settlement in Manitoba, a population of mixed French, Scottish Cree, Ojibwe, and Algonquin heritage whose quote-unquote increasing refinement was apparent, he said, and whose progeny, Wilson was convinced, were better suited to be the permanent inheritors of the soil than Aboriginal groups who would not, as he put it, yield their nationality. A certain sleight of hand is crucial to the topos of the doomed Aboriginal, Laura Romero has written. It represents the disappearance of the native as not just natural, but as having already happened. Professionally committed to the 19th century's new notions of cultural heritage, English professors by Wilson's day tended to think of their task, as I suggested earlier, as involving the preservation of nationality. But maybe one index of the persistence of the tradition of Hugh Blair across the centuries and across the Atlantic might be this passage in Wilson's Prehistoric Man in which he comes across as bemused and a bit irritated by the Iroquois who will not yield their nationality. In the meantime, federal government policies like those carried out under the auspices of the chillingly named 1857 Act for the Gradual Civilization of the Indian tribes had been put in motion to force the issue. As Robert Crawford has proposed, the project of rhetoric and ballet as guided by Blair was indelibly marked by Blair's perception that as an inhabitant of 18th century Scotland, he too occupied a country that was strikingly divided between the primitive and the refined, between those at the vanguard of progress and those whom it had left behind. Blair's lectures were intended to advance a cultural restructuring, Crawford says, uh, that could remedy this situation of of development meant that is to encourage improved writing in Scotland so that Scotland can participate fully in the freshly defined British state. Blair thus modeled to his Edinburgh lecture goers, as Crawford puts it with audible anger, how to go about the process of cultural conversion to an acceptable metropolitan standard and how to secure the silencing of vernacular expression. And yet, Blair's pages constantly betray a nostalgia for the energy and imagination of lost orality, and the suspicion that primitive, uncouth forms of language were more poetic than the later ones that replaced them. The first lecture on taste he gave to his Edinburgh students mentions in the same sentence as illustrations of the universality of aesthetic pleasures, ignorant peasants who are delighted with ballads and tales, and American savages who have their war and their death songs, their harangues, and their orators. There are similar conjunctions in Wilson's Primitive Man, passages in which he zigzags between, say, the primitive superstition evident in the old Scottish ballads and the grave rites of the Chinook Indians at Fort Vancouver. Within the 18th century tradition of rhetoric and ballet, the enthusiasm for civilized refinement was persistently in tension with a strain of primitivism. Daniel Wilson's career suggests that when English Studies was exported to English-speaking Canada, such tensions formed a large part of the package. But of course, as an individual split between old and new worlds, as between historical fact and poetic imagination, as a celebrant of modern scientific rigor who claimed Walter Scott as his primary inspiration, as an enthusiast of relics, as Edgerton Ryerson put it, who could also acquiesce in the inevitability of cultural assimilation, Wilson appears to have embodied many cultural contradictions.
0: That was, uh, I, I've learned a lot about Wilson. <laughs> 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 <I just laughs> I've learned a lot about Wilson. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> just wondering um, on on this business of the, uh, the the sort of decline and fall narrative mm-hmm. and, and how uh, in a w- in a way Blair before the fact gets cast as the uh, as the, as the sort of seeds of ruin in yeah. in, in, in the story. Um, one thing that occurs to me with in in relation to the the antiquarian historical uh, um, interface, if that's the right way to put it, I mean, there's two ways of looking at the past. I mean, a, a, a narrative which is a progressive one, the 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 historian, the historiographical narrative of the Scottish Enlightenment, and the antiquarian one is that the the relationship between nostalgia and something that's actually potentially at least politically quite radical is is very unclear and mm-hmm. I, I think that gets sort of crystallized out in the 19th century into a black and white picture that the antiquarians are, are backward looking or are, are atavistic or are sort of grubbing up old relics mm-hmm. of the past whereas history marches forward and uh, and so that, that 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 progressive narrative is, is taking over from those fragmenting objects one of the things that is very surprising and ought to startle us more, probably, about Blair's lectures, is um, his decision to incorporate that lecture on Ossian subsequently, yeah. because yeah. that, in the 1760s, um, along with the fact that Blair himself is one of the people who commissions and spends his own money to send Macpherson off to mm-hmm. to find these relics, is is not at all obviously. Uh, an act of sort of either political quiescence or or atavistic yeah. uh, Primitivism, it, it's actually quite a, an aggressive act in the sense and his own um, Defense of the authenticity and historicity of the poems of Ossian is, is a You know a very bold statement at the time that then becomes um, part of a political battle backwards and forwards really resisted more by English writers than, than by Scots mm-hmm. in many respects, mm-hmm. um, and I wonder whether there isn't something of that still in what's going on in the antiquary and what's going on in uh, Daniel Wilson's take on that as, as you mm-hmm. describe it, that, that his decision at a fairly tense point in the relationship between the colonial government and, uh, and the native peoples of Canada to focus on those those aspects of, of uh, existence and continuation native of native uh, evidence if you like in the landscape is, is itself quite a
2: yeah. Uh, <laughs> or,
0: or am I, am I giving a romantic... I know, I, I,
1: I wanted that. to think yeah. that, you I mean, partly, partly yeah. because, of course, when Wilson, when Wilson is dealing with sort of issues of preserving the Scottish past, yeah. he c- seems to have been quite, quite the fighter, right? And you can see that he finds, I mean, that that he almost finds in that case, the resources of English literature and history, the resources of the humanities, something that he can turn against sort of people who who say, well, capitalist progress, mm-hmm. but by, by all means. I wanted to find more of that mm-hmm. when it came to his dealings with kind of the First Nations people in Canada But he veers wildly in prehistoric man, I think, between kind of acknowledging that they're still living Mm -hmm. and still Mm -hmm. making things and that he can meet them and uh, uh, that, you know, they're going to (laughs) people, people of of Aboriginal Mm -hmm. descent are, you know, in his classrooms even. And then this rhetoric that that really says this is a place without a, this is a place that's at the very beginning of time um, this place that, that 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 kind of mobilization of, of, of what Jona Johannes Fabian calls the, the the denial of coevalness where they're not in the the, 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 the the landscape that they occupy is not the landscape of the present and that issue has already been decided um, so. I don't, I'm, yes, yes, he does work on aboriginal artifacts at a, at a time when to do so is, is is quite brave, but most of the people, and I, I just don't know enough yet to know whether I can trust the, 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 the people who've written on him, do comment on, on kind of how unlike, say, modern anthropology, he really doesn't Mm. seek out opportunities to see peoples for himself. He takes his, he's very good friends with an artist named Paul Kane, who did document um, with really fascinating paintings, (coughs) sometimes politically problematic when they were cleaned up for collectors, did a journey across. Uh, Western Canada in the late 1840s, early 1850s, and documented in his sketchbook all of these peoples who had recently just come under the jurisdiction of of the Canadian uh, government, and uh, Wilson is good friends with Kane and uses some of Kane's pictures for, for a prehistoric <laughs> man but shows no desire ever <laughs> to repeat that <laughs> any even the smallest portion of that journey one one journey to Lake Superior uh, in 1855 and that's it so so that makes me feel a little less confident <laughs> <laughs> about that or maybe it is that for all his kind of um, you know, sense that history needn't only be that which <coughs> is in written words. Actually, he did pr- seem to prefer the mediation of words to sort of right. the fir- to first-hand, imperi- uh, uh, first-hand experience when, when he was um, writing ab- about the Aboriginal peoples of Canada.
2: Mm.
0: Well, maybe yeah. Maybe I have to give up the idea that that Wilson can be redeemed. <laughs> well, <I> mean, <laughs> I'm totally. I, I'm totally uh, in of uh, redeeming uh, Blair. Um, I mean, Blair. It seems to me one. I mean, yeah. one of the ways that that, as far as I know, Blair's lectures haven't been read but should be read is actually uh, an attempt to qualify, if not resist, the the onward progressive story of historiography which was becoming so dominant in looking at right across the disciplines that that, you know everything from you know another another discipline that's in evolution in a sense is uh, (coughs) thinking about anatomy and the fact that Alexander Munro has a skull of an Australian Aborigine on his desk when he is Mm -hmm. lecturing saying, you know, this is why those people are never going to take over the world you know, that must be somewhere behind it too, but but those Mm. things are, I think in Blair's lectures there is this constant qualification or, you know, it's not sufficient, it's not the only story in town Um, Mm -hmm.
1: I'll I'll grant you You it's not the only story, and I'll grant you Blair and I'll grant you Wilson insisting that it's not the only story, but I was disappointed (laughs) that (laughs) that, that kind of not, not having having invested so much time <laughs> in him I, I, I wanted a little bit bit more that, that i wasn't that i didn't quite find
0: i know i know other people in the in the audience have, have got other experiences of coming at wilson from our, from other yeah, places to no. <laughs> <laughs> come to the, yeah. the defense or give yeah. us another
3: vision uh, maggie did, did well you. thank you very very much i i uh, enjoyed this uh, tremendously and you can probably tell from my accent that time. Uh, uh, Canadian and um, in fact a graduate of University College. Uh, oh well, there um, you go. Uncle, yeah, It <laughs> yeah, just might be interesting for people to know. I think it's, it is a pity that we don't know more about Wilson's lectures yeah. and you know his lecture techniques. And it's great that we have the diary that you've you've yeah. quoted from. And uh, a great uncle of mine was also a student of Wilson's and did keep a diary. Unfortunately, very laconic one while mm-hmm. he was uh, at. Um, at University College, in the same decade, in the mm. 17, uh, in the 1870s, but he he does record having his last lecture with Wilson on a date in 1878, and saying that that uh, Wilson had read the whole of the Nuns' Priest Tale to them, for exa- for example. So you you get yeah. a bit of a bit of a more you know a bit of a picture there that doesn't yeah. come across in some of the other, as as you know to what he did in a uh, in a in a lecture. But I I get the feeling that he did. Um, Uh, He was, of course, continuing to interact with the Society of Antiquaries here, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um, uh, uh, people like Mitchell who, uh, you know, wrote the past and the present and so on, was using examples from, you know, from the Hebrides, from Shetland, from from elsewhere, of spindle whorls and things like that, that you, you know, could also find in the excavations of... of, of much earlier cultures and so on, but seeing these things in seeing them in use and, and, and uh, uh, looking at the theorizing of that and I, I wonder if we need to think about Wilson a little bit more as an artist and as someone who mm. was documenting things in, in a visual way which he did do in Canada you know he he, yeah. he, he you know he did his sketches and and his watercolors and so yeah, on which, yeah. uh, which are quite an amazing resource and I, I get the feeling that if he had had time, he would have done more field work. He certainly yeah. corresponded with people who were undertaking field work in the United States. Maybe more in the United States than in mm-hmm, Canada.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but, uh, and the, uh, uh, the uh, the project to bring the materials to the museum here, of course, his brother George was the first professor of of technology in the university here and headed up the museum and he was wanting to build up collections showing manufactures and industry and, and so on in, in, in progress, not just finished products. So what, what was very interesting about the materials that were, were sent from uh, what's now Canada to, um, to Edinburgh uh, in the spring, when you know the furs were being sent out, were were objects in at different stages of their manufacture, yeah, you know, from start yeah. to finish, yeah. and that comparative idea, which I think was really permeating people's thought from the time of of um, uh, uh, not simply Scott, but but Sir John Sinclair and the statistical accounts. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we need to turn to those. For more of an influence on Wilson than has perhaps been detected by some of the people who have yeah. have written about him. And, um, uh, I mean, that, like you, I, I have a good ti- deal of time for Wilson of, of, uh, for, for a variety of reasons and, and, you know, it is disappointing when in a way he doesn't take steps yeah. that one thinks might have been logical for him. Yeah, yeah. But I think the constraints of 1850s University of Toronto on his time were, t- were tremendous and as he became more and more more involved in university administration and so on it was impossible for him to undertake you know yeah. the kind of, of firsthand work that uh, yeah. you know that might have might well have have brought him to other conclusions no and no I mean I, mean I
1: use administration as an excuse all the time too <laughs> <laughs> no and it's yeah. true yeah. Yeah. it's a good his excuse about yeah. the meeting, yeah. Uh,
3: yeah. you know as being the potential uh, real Canadians, mm-hmm. you know, was quite revolutionary in its own way, and we do need to remember that, I think.
1: No, and I think that's absolutely right, and and kind of, you know, the paper was already slightly on the windbag bag dan side, but, but had I had a, a bit more time, I mean, the, he one of the things that kind of put him out of favour was his opposition, uh, as an anthropologist, his opposition to these horribly racist pseudo-Darwinist craniometric measurements proving that kind of uh, aboriginal peoples were of a different species. He, he reading, it was very interesting reading the um, American uh, Nature, which is the the, the mm-hmm. magazine still of of of, of um, some fields of, of, of American anthropology, and they hate his work, mm-hmm. and they hate it because it denies th- it denies sort of uh, uh, race as a pertinent category, um, and I think that may meant that for a long time the ethnological stuff was just seen as hopelessly behind the time compromised by wilson's uh, piety in, in effect his his kind of you know insistence on on, on on kind of you know returning to the bible sometimes in order to say well the bible says of one blood um, and that that was really damning for you know the next <laughs> the next 60 70 years, years.
0: Although it's, I mean, by itself, that the polygenesis argument is, is often used as a as a justification for racism. For racism. The well, and, so he, is, was yes. against and the he was poly- against yeah, that, but, yeah. he, but yeah. although yeah. perhaps yes. for reasons that we might find. Right, well, yeah. right. right, right, but but, but nonetheless, yeah, yeah. And yeah. 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 um, Brian, um, in terms of one other concern constraint. I'm neither an expert on a Canadian educational history <laughs> or on um, I'm not a but like <laughs> um, I know in your um, southern neighbor, which I'm a little bit more familiar with, um, there was a trend in some religious organizations, uh, similar to your, I guess, Canadian Act for the Gradual Civilization of the Indian Tribes, kind of almost religious feeling of duty to civilize and redeem the, you know, heathen aboriginals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering with the with what appears to be a very strong Methodist influence in the University of Toronto um, particularly as you mentioned the debates about the amount of tax dollars that should be apportioned mm-hmm. to religious institutions mm-hmm. um, if that might have been somewhat of a constraint on Wilson's ability to you know really genuinely interact in a way that we might find more anthropologically um,
1: I uh, I don't think that w- that was the constraint. I mean, he's very committed to the University College being a non-denominational institution, and 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 is in, indeed very brave, and in as indeed his political masters were in standing up for that when at a, at a time when kind of Canadian uh, Ontario, especially, was deeply deeply riven by religious sectarianism. So I don't think that that's the the constraint what does happen what what that 1857 act and this will take me away from Wilson but but maybe I I, I will be able to get back to I mean for anybody any any Canadian knows <laughs> because it's 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 constantly in the news. The 1857 uh, act for the gradual civilizing of the Indian tribes was the forerunner to the, the residential school movement which was kind of consigned to the churches in Canada and which was basically genocidal. Um, it was, it, and was run of all of the horrible ironies by a poet, one of Canada's great late 19th century poets, Duncan Campbell Scott, became the undersecretary for the Bureau of Indian Affairs and t- set up a residential school system basically to force the issue of assimilation. He said, I will, I basically, there's a horrible quotation from his letters that says, I, I won't be happy till there is no Indian problem because there's no Indians. <laughs> um, so so Wilson's own kind of vision of the Métis it's double edged on the one hand like he's like for miscegenation and you have to go wow somebody who's into miscegenic miscegenous sex in the 1860s that's astonishing but then the vision is to see kind of these differences utterly meld and that it's, it's as I said very double edged yeah.
4: Yeah, uh, th- uh, thanks for that. It's very complicated territory. <laughs> it's <thing>. very <laughs> complicated. You <he> took us <laughs> over. Um, I mean, looking at him from the sort of the Edinburgh side and his Edinburgh history, uh, he—I mean—two things strike me. One is that he, he's part of a group that is very disturbed by change. I mean, I find the way he goes through mm-hmm. the second and third editions—you know, demolished, demolished—and—and mm-hmm. and this. Uh, urge to preserve even if it 's just in a sketch the memory of the past and and indeed a lot of the castle business is to try and preserve something that will enable you to contact with the past and and, and I suspect mm-hmm. that some of this rather what to us is rather odd attitude towards um, uh, the, the native people's uh, artifacts and and, and, and and so forth but what I find very hard to to, to get at, I mean, once having said those things, is actually, uh, I get a sense that he's a very moral man. But I, I find it very hard to to know how he's making moral judgments. Mm-hmm. I have a suspicion there's something he's learned from his Scottish, uh, you know, the, the Scottish Presbyterian standing before his God and giving an account. Um, but I, I
3: there people about it 's not
4: Presbyterian. I find it. Mm-hmm.
3: And then he became an Anglican. He became an Anglican.
4: Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, that's, that's a good North American experience, isn't it? But in a sense, a Baptist is, is a. Well, a Calvinist. Yeah, 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 okay. We'll, we'll I'll argue with that Calvinists, later. Really but you know, in, in a sense, there's that. Uh, where, where is he coming from? And how does he make moral judgments? Because he clearly does. And you've just given accounts of, of, of how he's, he's stuck up in the face of some very hostile and dominant opinion
1: you know the narrative of progress that he does have time for it strikes me is the narrative of we're all approaching closer to god it's it it is a sort of millenarian narrative of of kind of improvement and progress getting us i mean it and and it, that's couched very much in in religious terms and i'm thinking here of his poetry, um, uh, particularly, I think I mentioned this to you, Bob in, in the National Library because mm. I was so excited at, at at having finally been able to read a copy of this. He's got a long, a long historical poem on the Reformation um, uh, that does have. A, it's like a. It's like a. Scott, it's. M- it's like a mini Scott metrical romance. Um, uh, it's not as long, but it has five books and it has a love plot and. And it it is a it has all of these moments of vision of a future defined by universal brotherhood, um, and and I think that was I think he felt that deeply. That the poem was written quite early in his life, but he re- republishes it in this eighteen seventy five, um, and I think that's in this eighteen seventy five book of his, his his poetry, and I think that that's kind of where the moral judgments are coming from. Though that's a, it's, it's again, it's a funny, funny source to, I mean, you can make all sorts of judgments thinking that, that this is the shape that history takes that might in the shorter term seem problematic. But I do think that that was the one narrative of progress mm-hmm that he doesn't feel, um, d- didn't feel ambivalent about, that this has just occurred to me by, by thinking about your comment and, 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 and Susan's initial question. Mm. But I, 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 he is puzzling. I'll just, I will just agree, I, agree with you there. And I, I don't know that I'm much closer than, than, than I was at the outset of, of, of my investigations at quite knowing what's going on with
2: him. Um, I was so interested in these competing visions that you were tracking with him. And one, one of them, it seems to me, is the competing vision between uh, certain anthropological views. On the one hand, the the typo- typologies that were merging around Darwin and post-Darwin. But also the sort of idea of uh, reinvigorating the nation through miscegenation, yeah. which one might <laughs> see as a progressive narrative, yeah. but in fact run in a different way. Yeah. Is it, is, can be, as you said, can be different. So it's a different. So, but what was particularly interesting, and I wondered if you could say even more, is this sort of competing vision around, let's say, the idea of invention uh, and how that dovetails with this sort of New vision of what literary study should be and yeah. the kind of refusal or embracing of aesthetics. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, don't know, I mean, it was there, and, and I just wanted to no. say more about it because it, it's so fascinating how important he was there. It's he so went, well, well, he was the one man show,
1: and then, I mean, Toronto, for better or worse. Produced most of the um, Toronto PhDs yeah. for the next century, uh, so so he, he did have a, a, a huge impact. I'm I'm yeah, and I'm not entirely happy with what I said about about sort of how the students studying from Spalding would learn about literature as opposed to have an aesthetic experience with it, but. Th- and so I'll, I'll say two things to, to sort of flesh out that comment, because that's what the comment you were
2: referring to. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. You, yes. and then more widely you were talking about the refusal of aesthetics and you yeah. know, the sort of rhetorics and, and yeah. aesthetics and how those kind of played out in a new vision of literary study, which is so fascinating to be looking.
1: And part of part of the issue is right making English an examinable subject. I mean we heard about this a little bit from Nigel Leesk, right, where where kind of the teaching that had to had to come into play for Scots to pass the civil service exam to take up positions in in, in India. There wasn't a civil service exam like that in Canada, but partly because of technicalities um, having to do with this non-denominational college being the teaching branch of something that called itself the University of Toronto. Examinations were fairly detached from, from lectures in, 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 in some ways, like for instance, girls who couldn't attend the University of Toronto couldn't go into the lecture halls, could take the examinations, uh, for instance. So there's something, there's that, I think that the kind of tension, that between kind of having aesthetic experiences with literature and then kind of being able to answer exam questions about kind of Scott's metrical romances and things like that, the stuff in the textbooks, comes a little bit from that arrangement of the teaching, which I don't think was particular to Toronto. I actually think that was pretty common in in the 19th century. And the William Spaulding Manual, which is just Fantastically fascinating! This this long uh, kind of multi chapter narrative history of everything up to the Victorian poets. Um, looks like looks to me like an anthology inside out meaning it's all kinda headnote, and then in the footnotes he puts extracts mm-hmm. so that you get the feel of the literature but it's just in the footnotes um, it's it's such a bizarre thing <coughs> um, and that I think is again it's it's for students it's it's a manual I think produced I- in this country for people about to take that civil service exam um, uh, that's, I think, what is meant by the the, the reference in its long title to uh, private study. Um, on the other hand, I think that throughout the history of English studies, or at least throughout the 18th and 19th century history of English studies, a lot of kind of what what, for the lack of a better term, I will call the love of literature went on in at the edges of the, 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 the professing. So Wilson runs a Friday night literary society, yes. something that you can t- trace back to, you know, all of those mid 18th century Edinburgh, Glasgow societies. And I think that a lot of kind of the aesthetic experience of literature went on there, except those unlike the 18th century equivalents don't really leave a paper trail Um, um, and I told uh, Katrina, Catr- 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 I was going to mention this. Um, there's a, another fantastic institution at the University of Toronto called the Margaret Eaton School of Literature and Expression, which is where the women um, who who didn't like what, who didn't like the circumstances in which they were emi- admitted to the university in 1884, didn't like how miserable their lives were were made. They took courses at the Margaret Eaton School of Literature and expression um, just around the corner which was about performing what they learned to do was perform poetry in staged readings. Um, but that's you know the institutions like that. I think were probably all over the place. But they're always at the edges of institutions. They got to go. They got to go over to the University of Toronto for some of their lectures on poetry. But then they would come back and and and, and kind of do this other thing that was an amalgam of modern dance physical education drama and poetry and so i don't i think that our histories of the discipline haven't found a way to talk about how how the reading that isn't assigned is always the reading that's that's most exciting right i mean we know this from 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 our own lives and how much universities are centers for that so that even when they seem to have turned a discipline into something that's anti-creativity, in fact, that might not be the, the, the best way to portray it. This, this is just, again, stuff i have just starting to figure out while I'm, I've been thinking about Wilson and thinking about those Friday evenings and what those Friday evenings, which have you know, tons and tons of equivalents, I think, in, in many other universities, um, what, what they might have involved.
0: That, that issue of the the emergence of a sort of codified discipline through an examinable subject is is, is something that's sort of kept coming up in, as we've been mm-hmm.
2: um,
0: thinking about blair's legacies and so on and, and it, i mean it, of course before the civil service exam it it's the case that most of the people who would have heard blair's lectures <coughs> would never have taken a, a BA right. or an AM as it, as yeah. it, were, it then was. I mean, that yeah. the, the idea that you would be examined on this. I mean, the examination was life. Yeah. Did you go out and become, yeah. you know, yeah. the person who could express themselves yeah. and could appreciate literature? And so, on. so that, that I mean, that, that, that in a certain sense, it's, it's it depends how you define the disciplinarity. Absolutely. Of is yeah. it actually in you know making it examinable, or, or is it in somehow trying to get to the edges of what might be uh, involved in the topic. And I I wondered there if you could say a bit more about this, I mean, what, what to me was fascinating, this sort of internecine Toronto, oh, uh, Toronto, well, Toronto yeah, University College yeah, Victoria, College. Victoria College. Because yeah. I mean, I'm interested in this invocation of the kind of the anti-American example. As you know, Americans have already got this far too paked and dry. Yeah, so yeah, Is that I, I, is that typical by that point, or is it? I mean, is that already happening in in Canadian attempts to define? Canadianness against. Oh, America. absolutely. Yeah. yes, does, does, does <laughs> That's uh, all there is. It, <laughs> <although it's good. laughs> yes. Well, I didn't like to say so, but, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, is that. Does, no, no, I'm, does I'm, Wilson's just really response that to that uh, yeah. indicate an, another viewpoint? I mean, one would expect that he would have to take hmm. a much more cosmopolitan or universalist stance in relation to that yeah. kind of small nation
1: cultural cringe um, you know. yeah well Wilson I mean the other the other narrative in which Wilson sometimes gets slotted as villain is that there is a Canada first uh, Movement after 1867, after Confederation, mm. which says and, and indeed the University of Toronto is still having these battles. Yeah. Uh, you must hire Canadians right. first. Yeah. Um, what it proves that the 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 kind of education you've been setting up is no good at all. The fact that you keep hiring people from Edinburgh. <laughs> um, so so he does stand up for cosmopolitanism, but that, that cosmopolitanism at that point is is in friction with. Kind of a, a, a nascent Canadian nationalism, and Canadians have—I mean that—that that is sort of the the center, I think, of the project of of, of Canadian civility—is we're not Americans, yes. <laughs> um, yes. and that dates back to the United. I mean, uh, Edgerton Ryerson's father was a, a, a United Empire Loyalist um he so he left uh america during the the the, the revolution mm. so it the 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 kind of anti-americanism is an anti-republicanism an anti sometimes an anti-capitalism it depends it it mm. it, it, it takes multiple yeah, forms yeah. but it's it it is pervasive in 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 late 19th century canada if if not on also today. Yeah. Other, um, Who can ask? Me? Yeah. Part
5: one, there was a very small question. It was just how did he get away with sending all those Indian artifacts? I think it was uh, very easy. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I think. Yeah. You answered it by saying he had these strong connections. Well, he, with these yeah. he and his
3: brother knew George Simpson, who was the head of the Hudson Bay Company, the governor mm-hmm. of the Hudson Bay Company. And it was the governor of the Hudson Bay Company who really put this project mm-hmm. into uh, 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 practice by requiring his chief traders in the uh, northern outposts, which which sent furs to London. Um, every spring to pack in with the furs, artifacts of. Uh, but that uh, was London of this You
0: said they came back
2: to. Oh, well the Museum of they Edinburgh. To, oh yes, they, came they came to, to George Wilson. They came to Britain. Oh,
3: you yeah. know through the Hudson Bay yeah. uh, Company shipments. Yeah. and uh, and it was you know it was done really bec- you know because of the network that the Scottish so network. No
5: one. Why well, can't we keep these things? Not no. them.
2: No.
1: No. no. I don't know. I mean I I had a rather sad afternoon in the National Museum looking <laughs> <laughs> for <laughs> things and 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 I don't know whether some were later sent back. There's certainly not a lot of no, of Canadian stuff on, on, on exhibit. It's now. Not on display, but there's yeah. a very
3: large collection in the yeah. you know, in the uh, in and storage. if you're here for a while more you can yeah. certainly yeah. see that. There was a um, an exhibition in nineteen seventy four. Called called Strangers of the North, uh, which was a joint exhibition uh, with Dene and and um, Athapascan uh, uh, materials shared with 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 the, the holdings here, and there's a very good catalogue of yeah. Of that. No, I should track that down. In subsequent yeah. uh, uh, exhibitions, one well, not all that long ago but there has not been, as far as I'm aware, any repatriation.
2: Yeah, there hasn't, okay, that's interesting. I
0: think there's another whole area there that, I mean, obviously we, can't really enter at this point, but should, which is about the, the whole relationship between the Scottish Society of Antiquaries and the University and yeah. the emergence of, of these discrete disciplines of anthropology, archaeology,
3: yeah. historical... Yeah. No, the role, no, of, the museum, the role mm. of the museum in, in this, yeah. which uh, as a museum of, of, of industry. Really. Right.
2: right.
5: Um, I should declare an interest and uh, I curate the collections that... Um oh. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fantastic. Sorry. But no, no, not at all. Um, just to say that we have, we um, very recently had a contact with the Cleecho community and um, they have empowered their objects as their ambassadors.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, good to so know. So yeah. there is... Yeah. Mm-hmm.
5: yeah. There w- um, we we're always, we have never ever received any request for repatriation of that material but in yeah. fact for some of the communities it's their main way of declaring who they are you
2: know, right.
5: elsewhere, yeah. 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 So, staking a claim for yeah. themselves because yeah. many are little known yeah. outside. Um, so, and mm-hmm. the are their objects are displayed in the galleries. Mm-hmm. Um, Interrupted by that. <laughs> but um, I was interested in perhaps you talked earl- earlier about the way that he used objects, uh, he, he saw you could read objects, and I just wondered whether that influenced his, since he was used to reading historical archaeological artifacts, whether he felt that there was no need to question the individuals.
2: Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, don't no, that's sort of
5: what I feel. Yeah. He was used to yeah. looking at objects that there was no informant right. with them, and right. he felt that that could be separated. Yeah. It was enough to put them, <coughs> to read the objects themselves. I, d- I don't know. That
1: seems I mean. right to me. Um, the <coughs> th- That that chimes with my sense that that kind of, in some ways, you know, he's somebody who switches, you know, he switches, when he comes comes to Canada, he stops being an engraver, he becomes a watercolorist, there's all sorts of switches, but I think that in many ways, his antiquarianism, he felt like that was a thing that could continue, right, that it wouldn't be disrupted, um, by, by being in this new site, it would be, buttress, it would buttress what he had already done, and and so that, you know, he couldn't have talked to kind of, um, uh, you know, dead pre-pictish people, but he c- um, and so he, you're absolutely right, he, he, he just, talk doesn't seem
0: necessary to him. Yeah. Well, that would certainly fit with your starting point with the antiquary, because yeah? Yeah. that's really mm-hmm. what Old Buck does too, you know, in know. Yeah, sense. yeah, Right. I think the um, increasing thank hubbub you. from that <laughs> is telling us that this room is going to be uh, invaded fairly soon. And um, uh, we're much indebted to Deirdre for, mm. first of all, a terrific talk. But then thank you. Some very full and fascinating mm-hmm. Thank and you for, for your um, comments and questions. Um, uh, before we just end by thanking you properly, can I remind you we have one more of these uh, sessions to come on the 20th of March when we'll be talking about theaters of learning, drama, the university, and performance in Scotland and the, um, the speakers then will be our own Olga Taxi-Doo, uh, Peter Arnett, who's a resident playwright at the Genomics Forum and, and with the Travers, and David McLennan, who's the director of uh, Oran Moore uh, Theater in Glasgow. So um, if you're able to come back then, that would, um, I think, be uh, a nice end to the series. But uh, let us thank uh, Deirdre Lynch very much mm-hmm. for a terrifically interesting Um I'm afraid we're going to get sort of pretty well shunted out, so I' we'll apologize for that.